in ancient China. A meditation master was asked, what is enlightenment? And answered, eating rice and drinking tea. That's enlightenment. Does that excite you to work hard for? (laughs) Eating rice and drinking tea. Well, if it's true, does that mean if we all get all our cars and vans and just pile in and drive to Worcester and go to the nearest Chinese restaurant and have some rice and tea that we're all going to get enlightened? It's somehow it's in the rice or the tea. You just have to have to get the right restaurant. <laughs> It's actually a very profound statement and can be looked at from two sides, from two ends. Uh, One from the beginning of practice, including the very first day that you begin. If you've never practiced before, some of you are rather new. And it has to do with what we've been saying over and over again. That is to, to just eat your rice, and to just drink your tea. Probably by now you know that's not so easy. That is, while you're eating your rice, there's a lot of other things going on. And to simply just drink a cup of tea is also, uh, can be a spiritual endeavor to really do it. So in that sense, it's a practice If you recall, we left off with doggy mind and lion mind. That is the capacity of the mind to bring its energies together and to do things wholeheartedly, particularly to see wholeheartedly into the way, <coughs> into the way things are. And so to just eat rice and to just drink tea is a shorthand for... for it to just do anything, really. And then it has a deeper meaning. Everything okay? Can you hear me in the back? Oh, because I don't have a... If we can, anyone know anything about how to get PA? Just keep going. It was also a statement uh, about uh, the depths of enlightenment experiences, breakthroughs in our practice. That is the one people attain varying degrees of enlightenment. Then it becomes enlightenment eats rice. Enlightenment drinks tea. That is, there's nobody there. There's no one who's eating the rice, there's no one who's drinking the tea. But it's never more delicious. And that's because uh, 
that's full to, to be enlightened is to, is to be more alive. So it's both a kind of, in a sense a beginning meditation instruction to just be mindful of whatever you do. And it's also a very unassuming way of describing what it's like in a sense at the end of the journey. In other words, life goes on. But it's, of course, not in the tea. And it's not in the rice. It's something else. We've had, uh, over, the, over the weekend, I think the person who... Um, was so ecstatic is gone, I'm not sure. But there was someone here who, um, after hearing the basic instructions, had a job. Her job was to vacuum. Is the vacuumer here? I guess she left. Weekend. Okay. Uh, and she came, she was just ecstatic, and we spoke a little here. And, uh, and what happened was, relative to what she knew, that she was just vacuuming. And she just found it extraordinary to just leave everything behind and just 100% become vacuuming. She was ecstatic. But that doesn't make the rest of us want to vacuum. (laughs) (laughs) And people have attained enlightenment certain experiences have precipitated a, a breakthrough, like seeing cherry blossoms fall, or getting one's foot caught in the door, and the extreme pain, totally being with the pain. Now, uh, again, it's, we could all go and get our foot jammed in the door, but that's not going to do it. We could all charter a bus and go to Washington, D.C. soon, and watch the cherry blossoms. That won't do it. So it has something to do with the nature of, and it's a ripening, a ripening of consciousness, which at a certain point, it really doesn't matter. Anything can do it. But it has a lot to do with just the ordinary, humble things that we've been doing around here. You have to understand that. You know, to just be with an in-breath and an out-breath. By the way, I'm going to talk about that again tonight. Uh, I know you've heard it a lot. And for those of you who are perhaps tired of hearing it, my question would be, have you done it yet? (laughs) (laughs) That's why we have to go on and on. We're also talking to ourselves, I have to admit, to make sure we do it, try to do it. Um, So let's come in closer on this and understand what what it has to do. It has to do with wholeheartedness. Uh, what is this mindfulness that we keep talking about? And just to make sure, because there are some people who are rather new, and for all of us, sometimes it's good to take stock of a word that we use so often. A few qualities of this mindfulness which would be central in eating the rice and drinking the tea. One, mindfulness is mirror-like, or it has a capacity to reflect In that sense, it has no content. Just like a good mirror, the value of the good mirror is that it's nothing. 
in a sense. It's empty. And because it's empty, it can reflect back what you put in, in front of it and help you in many ways, in ways which mirrors can help, can show you something about yourself. So it's reflective, this mindfulness that we're talking about. It is before thinking. It's preconceptual. It's not thinking. Because mindfulness can be mindful of thinking. So the mirror can reflect back thought. At the beginning, we, pr- we try to prompt it a lot through, we have to use words. But finally, the, the real mindfulness has no words in it. It's not uh, an idea. It's a function. It reflects just what's there. It's unbiased. It has no, plays no favorites. It doesn't add anything or subtract anything from what you're attending to. And this is what we're refining. This is the, the quality that we're developing in all the small ways that we do it throughout the day, moment by moment. It's that in us which really sees exactly the way things are. It has no goal. The only goal is in the seeing itself. That's its job, just to see clearly. (coughs) And it's not something, uh, contrary to what some of the language implies, something remote or as if you're looking with binoculars or a telescope from the Himalayas down in the valley somewhere. Uh, Mindfulness is intimate. It's a kind of participant observation. That is, if you're uh, to be mindful even of a breath, it's to fully mix with the breath. It's to fully become one with the breathing. If it's fear, you're participating in your fear while staying awake. So the observation is from the inside. It's intimate. And I know some of us, some of you have talked about mindfulness in ways in which it sounds like you're Uh, detached, getting away from it. Uh, Perhaps that's on the way. But the real mindfulness practice is very alive and it's right in there. It's uh, experiencing life in as close a way as you can, can get. Okay, so this is this quality that when we just eat rice, we just drink tea. Um... Let me suggest a few problems involved. Why why don't we do it? Why is it so difficult to do? Without giving long-winded explanations, perhaps a few examples will just give you a sense of what we're up against. Uh, For varying reasons, probably all of us have a lifetime of training in unawareness. Whereas, to a great extent, who we are today or at least to some extent, is due to unawareness. We're we're adepts. We're well-practiced. And we have our bits and pieces when we flash in. But it doesn't seem as if that is what we've been brought up to do, particularly to be aware of ourselves. 
You can just see right now in our own culture the difficulty. It, it, what we're teaching here is a head-on collision with so much of what's going on. You know, that's just a normal part of life in the modern world. You know these bumper stickers? There's a whole bunch of them now. I'd rather be fishing. I'd rather be golfing. I'd rather be playing tennis. Everything but where I am now. It's a wonder there aren't more accidents if everyone is driving their car, even if they're sober, but they want to play tennis and they, instead they have to drive a car. Or then those who are not walking around wanting to be somewhere else are even more vivid. They're walking around with headphones listening to something else that's to take their mind away from where they are or to be more efficient. Learning Portuguese while going to the bank. <laughs> this really goes on in Cambridge. This is normal, you know. Or I haven't seen it yet. I've seen advertisements for it, a, a TV set that, uh, where you can see two channels at the same time, one in the right-hand corner. In the upper right-hand corner, you see a, a little itty-bitty channel and then the major one, so that while you're watching one, you can kind of figure out that's really the one you want to watch. Or the advertisement has two brothers, two twins, fighting with each other as to which one is the right one. And they can, you know, why not make it three, four, five at the same time? So that's one aspect of it. Somehow, wherever we are, there's a better place to be, either the good old days or our imagination of what lies in front of us. And yet, our life is only here and only now. I wonder if the people who would rather play golf or tennis, I wonder if they really do that when they get to it. Maybe they do. I mean, we probably all have at least one realm where we become absorbed. Let me give you a few examples from my own uh, practice, uh, personal disasters, uh, which I hope are, you can see are not just about me, and I hope it's helpful. Myself and two other people um, went to Korea to, pra to practice Zen in a Korean monastery. We were various monasteries for a year. And at the time, we were the first Americans to come to Korea. And so right now, I'm sure what I'm saying is not true. But at the time, they had virtually no American kind of food. And for the first two or three weeks, it was pure torture for us because there was nothing like breakfast. It was just uh, kimchi, rice, uh, all kinds of things which I now love, but at the time, uh, it wasn't you know, hot cereal, something like what we have here. At any rate, it was a totally new diet in a totally new country with water that wasn't agreeing with us and nothing was agreeing with us. And the three of us, and I probably was the leader, 
were complaining all the time, you know, about, boy, even I'm vegetarian, but even I'd go for a Big Mac right now, you know. <laughs> Kellogg's cornflakes, I give my life for just a bowl of Kellogg's cornflakes. <laughs> boy, just a jelly donut and a cup of coffee. And our teacher uh, listened patiently for a while. And it was really going on and on. We were desperate. <laughs> Finally, one time, he just backed me up against the wall and he screamed at me very loud. He said, where are you? He screamed. And I said, Korea, <laughs> kind of sheepishly. And then he said, exactly. And he walked away on me. When you're in Korea, you eat Korean food. And you eat it right now at the time that eating happens. You don't, I'd rather be eating, you know, my bumper stick would be, I'd rather be eating a, a donut and a cup of coffee. And then even more dramatic, but this is more, uh, the most dramatic thing I know in my own life of the power of becoming one with what you do. The value of it. The, uh, how precious it is to develop that ability to fully become one with what you do, to really be present, no matter what it is, whether it's looking or listening or tasting, and certainly going inside. Again, this was the same uh, trip to Korea, which was full of things like this. You don't want to hear it all tonight, but full of disasters. Uh, this was a 90-day retreat. It was my first really long retreat. And uh, it was way up in the mountains at a monastery. And the three of us uh, didn't know what we were getting into. There was, uh, we had rather romantic notions about what, you know, being a monk at a monastery and parading around in the robes and bowing. And, you know, it was, for a while, it was like a Hollywood movie, about a week. <laughs> <laughs> and then it was just cold and hungry. And I want to go home. <laughs> In the midst of all that, uh, the 45th day of the 90-day retreat, we suddenly found out there was a very ancient tradition in Korea, uh, Korean Buddhism that uh, you go for one week without sleep. Now, on the retreat, now, we had no knowledge of this when we signed up. <laughs> and we we thought of, you know, how do we get to the, the next flight out of here? You know, <laughs> even though a tremendous amount of work had gone into getting us there. But we definitely talked that we were really upset and frightened and we felt betrayed. And why didn't our teacher tell us this is one of the things that we would have to face? And, and then we were kind of uh, embarrassed about we didn't want to make America look bad. There were a bunch of wimps, you know. <laughs> we had, no matter where we looked, there was no, no relief. And then it started, you know, the, what by it started, I mean, is around 11 o'clock, which is when we normally would go to sleep. Everyone goes to sleep at least at 11, no earlier than 11 o'clock. Uh, there was no sign of anyone, you know, no mats were being rolled out, no lights were being dimmed, no nothing. And we just kept sitting and walking and sitting and walking, and uh, apparently they meant it. So by about 2 in the morning, it was the most miserable, uh, God-forsaken time in my life, and my, my two friends as well. We were just 
with our eyes and facial expressions, just complaining and whining. And, uh, and it was exhausting, and we were discouraged and angry and just couldn't, I can't, I, and on and on like that. Uh, we got through that night just barely, you know, just bleary-eyed and really felt deflated. So we went to the, uh, went, we requested an interview with the, the Zen teacher who was in charge. And he was a, um, an old man of about 94 years old who had to be carried into the room. He, could, <laughs> uh, he would give Dharma talks, literally four or five months would carry him in. His mind was bright, his eyes were just totally fresh and impish and clear as a bell, but his body didn't work anymore, you know. And so we went to him and he, you know, he was smiling and laughing and it just made us feel worse. <laughs> and, then, and then he said something that, uh, just to show you there is some sense in what Narayan and I keep saying over and over again. He said, look, um, right now the problem for you is mainly uh, that you're walking around with the thought, no sleep for seven days, one week without sleep, and just sitting and walking, of course, meals. <laughs> and he said, that must weigh a ton. That's just a huge burden. He said, forget about all that and just do each thing in its turn. When it's time to sit, just sit. When it's time to walk, just walk. When you go to the bathroom, 100%, just go to the bathroom. Eat, really taste everything that you eat, etc., and so forth. And we had no other option except leaving, and so we did it. And we did it in a fierce way, I mean, because we had something terrifying at our back, which was we don't want to have uh, night number two be like evening number one. <laughs> and I have to tell you, it's quite remarkable. Now, it took fear to, apparently, to mobilize our finally believing in this Dharma teaching, you know, that whatever it is you do, do it, and not let it wither as a cliché. Because in some, in some ways, it, uh, at times I feel it's, it's a, one of the biggest clichés in Dharma circles. We're all talking about that. But essentially, where the excitement is, is sitting and maybe walking. It was a formal practice. But what this is saying is that no matter what you do, no matter where you are, perfect place to practice. In this sense, nothing is superior or inferior. <coughs> Going to the toilet or sitting in this hall, just as spiritual, from this point of view. What turned out is that it's not that it was easy. It was not. It was difficult, but it was certainly manageable. Uh, we did it, and we were able to do it, I would say, largely because of that advice. And whenever we would suffer, it became very clear that we were suffering because we had fallen out of the moment and we've gotten caught up in proliferations of the mind about what would be or where we could be now instead of being here. We're imagining when the end would be, four more days to go, three more days to go. That never worked. As soon as we did that, as soon as we lost it and weren't right in the moment, all of this stuff just would come pouring in. And so little by little, you do learn a lot sometimes when, that's, when survival is the motive, a certain kind of survival. Okay, um, how about applying these teachings around here? You know, soon, sooner than you think, we'll be going home. 
And very often people will say, how about an integration talk? How do you, what do you do with this practice back home? Well, you know, if you really hear what's being said now, you don't need any new instructions. There is one major difference. At home, you sit maybe an, a little bit, excuse me, relatively, and you do, you know, action-type things a lot more. And here we sit a lot and we do action-type things a little. But there's an everyday life here. Don't we all go to the bathroom, eat, wash, make our bed, go to sleep, get up, go from here to there? There's a daily life here. There's no place where there isn't daily life. Sometimes the question is, well, what do we do when we get back to daily life? This is it. This is it. it. We have an elaborate stage set, but this is our life. In other words, whatever we encounter is our life. And if you want to think, well, I'm in a retreat, Buddhist meditation center, IMS, Barry, and, you know, whatever fantasies are in your mind. But much more important is that these are real moments in our life. They're no more or less real, in one sense, than when we're riding the tea in Boston or, you know, brushing your teeth or whatever it is we do when we go home. And so if you, during your time here, because it's so protected and simplified, if you can get into that understanding that in a way, mindfulness from moment to moment isn't really a technique. I know it sort of is, but uh, it's what is called a prompted kind of thing. We have to prompt it. And then at a certain point, it becomes unprompted. It becomes more natural. And it's a way of living. It's a way, it's a very wonderful way to live. I don't think there's a monopoly on it. It's not that Buddhists own it or anyone else owns it. It's just a way of being sensitive, alert, fully alive from moment to moment. And the Buddha set forth some very useful, practical, and simple clear techniques to help grow into something that is just a way of living, a very fulfilling way of living. Um, Let me just sketch out what do we mean. Let's say when we get up from our cushion and we are chopping vegetables or sweeping the dining room or vacuuming or making a bed or whatever we do, because there's still a fair amount of that. we, We sit a lot but we do other things as well. To simplify it a little bit, but let's say, uh, number one, you have to know what's called for. In other words, what is your correct situation? What is, what is the name of this situation? What object should you be attending to? Let's say if we're outside, if you're driving, then the obvious ob- focal point of attention is then for goodness sakes, drive. You know, that is, it's clear what should be featured. It's the wheel and the, the brakes and so forth. If you, so that one's pretty simple. It's very simple. You go into a car and what you should be doing, where your wholehearted, alert sensitivity should be is very obvious. If you're eating, eat and so forth. It gets a little bit more complicated sometimes in certain situations where, uh, let's say, social situations where people are talking and so for where you have to keep in the context where you're, you're focused, but the focus can be shifting from moment to moment, and where there's a context of attention, you have to notice the, what people are doing around you and with you, and yet the practice still obtains. So that step number one is to figure out what is my correct 
in a sense, mindfulness job here. And very often it's straightforward. If you're in a vacuum, vacuum. You know, just have vacuuming mind. Just sweeping mind. Just cutting up the vegetables mind. Then number two is to do it. That is, to bring your full attention to the task at hand. Direct your interest, your alertness to that that you now understand. If you don't know what it is, take some time. Become aware of the the situation so that your uh, discernment helps you know just what is to be done here so that you have a chance of doing it in a way that's consistent with the practice. So number one is to to find out what our correct situation is. The second is to, to then devote our attention to that, to the primary objective of that. The third is Every time the mind wanders and is not, you know, you're vacuuming, your body is vacuuming, but your mind is in Toledo, Ohio, uh, you see that and come back. Does that sound familiar? It's not different than working with the breath in the hall. So that's step number three. We know what has to be done. We direct our attention to it. The third is when we see that we're, we're gone, step number three, we come back. And step number four is to do step number three about a billion times. Maybe more. It's either a footnote or step number five is that if your attention is pulled away from the vacuuming or chopping vegetables or whatever a lot, that's often a clue to then make that the primary object, especially if you can. In certain situations, you can't take your eye off what you're doing. I mean, if you're driving on a highway and there are a lot of cars, it's not the time to go into some uh, vipassana psychoanalytic inquiry into some childhood memory, into why it's there and why it's influencing what's happening. You might, you know, you can make a note of it and do it some other time. So in many situations, we don't have the luxury of being able to investigate, but often here we do. Even here, not always. So then look into it. If something is, just as with the breath, repeatedly pulling you away from what the task calls for, perhaps it's trying to tell you something. Maybe there's something that, is, that you're not doing in life that needs, that needs to be done. Or you're doing something in life that it's time to stop. And until that is taken care of, you can sit for 2,000 years. If you don't take care of those things, they'll still keep knocking on your door. Relationships that are not cared for or occupations that are not cared for, people and so forth. Okay, now, all of these, uh, this process, which I think is familiar to you because it's not that different than the sitting, really. In fact, it's not different at all. Um, can be helped by conscious breathing. The... Um, the fundamental principle or value of conscious breathing is that it nourishes mindfulness so that it's healthy and strong, clear, and something that you can use so that, that mindfulness can be brought into whatever it is that you're doing. And so whatever it is, mindfulness is called for, and it is possible, uh, I would say probably at first, little by little, to bring the breath in on it. And you know, you can from time to time say in, a few of you have asked in interviews, 
um, is it okay to do, to do this in out? You know, with the breathing, as you're doing things around the center, not just in the hall or walk, formal walking. Sure. Now, if you're new at using the breath beyond the formal practice in the hall, most people are. You have to under, uh, be patient and have a little bit of faith because. As you work with the breathing, as the breathing becomes more and more conscious, and it takes practice and time, what happens is the whole process of breathing becomes more vivid, more alive, and is much more accessible to you throughout the day. So that it's a very handy, since it's always happening, very handy, simple, and natural friend to help us stay awake and to help us stay awake in ways so that we can direct our mindfulness, this clear mirror, towards wherever it's needed. Whether it's listening to a person or cooking a meal or a surgical operation or giving a lecture or whatever it is in your life. We'll go over just a few minutes. I would like to leave you with just a certain attitude because this has come up in the interviews a lot. It's one of the hardest things to learn. When these old masters say enlightenment is, is just eating rice and, and drinking tea, it's another way of talking about uh, in a more pompous, more pompous way of saying it is about the non-dual, non-dualistic approach to life, to living. That is, you eat rice in order to eat rice. You drink tea in order to drink tea. You, you walk in order to walk. Um, or as one, uh, uh, A.J. Musty, who was a, a pacifist in the 50s, used to say, there's no way to peace. Peace is the way to peace. That is, it's by being peaceful in each moment that, you, that peace comes about. So it's not so much of a means-end way of thinking where we sacrifice the present in order to get some wonderful end. But rather, we take care of whatever is happening in the present moment. That is its own end. It's an end in itself. And in this sense, in this sense, it's not so utilitarian or instrumental or problem-solving or... uh, Here's what I'm getting at. Many of the problems in the practice, in the interviews that came up yesterday and today, uh, are all the same. They have to do... We come here with very calculating minds, and I use that term just as a description. Minds that are constantly calculating more in a means ends, in order to. You can call it an order to mind. We're always doing something in order to get something else. And it seems like we're always trying to get from A to B to C to D and finally make it to Z. If we could get from A to Z directly, great. If we can invent a machine that'll do that, that's an improvement. But our practice is learning how to get from A to A. So if you come here with a mind that everything is in order to, and here we're just saying... People come in and just say, and my mind was this and that. I said, I, 
fine, that's the way it is. You know, can you be with that? Yeah, but no, you don't understand. No, I do understand. That's exactly, you're telling me just, this is your situation right now. Right now your mind is agitated, or it doesn't want to meditate, or it hates Barry, or it loves Barry, or whatever that is. The practice is not outside of that. And, we, and yet the mind is, people, I want to heal the pain that I have from an ended re- a relationship that's over. I want to heal the pain that's come about from losing my job or not understanding what my next kind of work will be. I want to bring my blood pressure down. Now, all of these things, as we know, can be helped by meditation. But in our practice, they, they mainly are helped not so much by uh, putting them up on the marquee, you know, making a big agenda and a project out of it, but just do the simple practice. And when those come up, then that's what we're with. In this sense, I'm just thinking, I'll, I'll end with this, it may be perplexing to you, but uh, in this sense, our practice has no value whatsoever, no cash value. And one uh, Japanese Zen teacher who I personally like very much. Uh, at the end, uh, when he died, he, uh, he said what he wanted. He hadn't died yet. <laughs> <laughs> See, m- mindfulness heard that I had the wrong tense. <laughs> what is this mindfulness? <laughs> okay. And so uh, it came about through a question where people asked him, you know, he'd he'd been a a meditation practitioner all his life, and he died, I think, in his 80s or so. And he said, I wasted, I just want on my epitaph to read, I wasted my entire life on the cushion. (laughs) I have to understand that he's bragging. Okay, you don't get it? All right, okay. (laughs) Some more sitting is called for. Do some walking, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.